That was all in direct disobedience of what I was hoping for. <laughs> we don't understand low key. No, uh, really gracious. And I want to just say, uh, what a gift it has been. Five years. I can, I, that's crazy, isn't it? Isn't it crazy, Pete? Five years. Uh, you look the same age as when I came. No, I'm just teasing you. Um, yeah. Uh, I just, what a gift this church has been, not just to me, but to our family. We love Oregon, we love Portland, but we really love Cedar Mill Bible Church. And uh, yeah, speaking of, of family, I'm going to move on from that and just give a couple family updates. Um, we really just are, if you're new around here, a big, we're a big family, but we're a family. And we do life together in little pockets, but we also do life together as a whole. Um, last week, we prayed for uh, the Palaus, who had a festival um, in Grand Rapids, Michigan, and 33,000 people flooded downtown Grand Rapids for an amazing time to hear about the abundant life of Christ. There's Andrew preaching, and you'll notice Luis was preaching, um, and that's awesome. Back doing what he loves to do, and I, and I see over there, friend, you're with us this morning. I know you don't like to be pointed out, but they embarrassed me, so I'll embarrass you. Um, uh, and the reason Luis was able to go and preach is because just as a quick update on his health, uh, the treatment seems to be having some impact and the immunotherapy's working, uh, at least some, right, Luis? So not healed yet, but on his way and praising God for that. So thank you for your prayers for him and um, we're just praising God for how he's doing. Uh, I also want to mention a little girl from our church named Gracie Williams, we've talked about, uh, who, if you follow her on Facebook, is called Amazing Gracie, appropriately. Um, back in December, they discovered a cancerous tumor on her brainstem. She had an initial, initial surgery and then uh, some treatment, and that reduced the mass by about 50%. But then they were off into uh, um, clinical trials, treatments that were clinical trials. They went down to UC San Francisco and did that for a while, but recently those trials have been producing some side effects. So currently where they're at is they are waiting to have an MRI in the next few weeks that will determine next steps, but really what they want prayer for is some, some treatment options. They're running low on treatment options for Gracie, so we just need to pray for treatment options for her, for God's peace and power and presence in their family, for dad, Jamie, for mom, Emily, for big brother, Liam, and then of course for Gracie. So um, I wanna do that. I wanna together just pray for them and for her uh, before we dive into our message this morning. Lord, thank you for your promises that we are clinging to right now, your promises that you will never leave us nor forsake us, that one day all this pain and hurt and cancer will be wiped away. Right now, Lord, we pray that you would touch little Gracie, touch her life, touch her health. We ask him for healing, Lord. We're asking for peace and wisdom and strength for that family, that they would feel your arms around them in ways they never have, and that they would feel our church's love as well. So help us to know how to, to support um, this little girl, this precious little girl. We love you, Lord. We thank you for doing the things that we cannot do and for even praying the words that we don't know to pray. And so we agree with your spirit. And we pray it all in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. All right. Well, we are in a series called Broken Together. And in this series, we are talking about what it means to be the church 
when we encounter brokenness, what it looks like to be a community where people who are experiencing hurt and pain to feel safe and honest and vulnerable so that they can find healing and help in the midst of their suffering. And St. Augustine, one of the church fathers, wrote about this way back in the 4th and 5th century, in the very beginning of following Jesus, and he said this, the church is not a hotel for saints, it's a hospital for sinners, and you've heard that before, and yet it is true. The church should be a place where we can all bring our brokenness to a God who loves to restore broken things and broken people. And this week we are talking about an area where we have some room to grow. This week we're talking about sexual brokenness. And as we begin, I want to start with a verse about Jesus. You know, our mission around here is becoming like Jesus and making him known. And the reason for that is because Jesus embodied and lived and offered the kingdom of God to people in a way this world had never seen before. And so we want to be like him. And how he did it, I believe, is captured in this verse. John chapter 1, this is verse 14. The word, that's Jesus, became flesh and made his dwelling among us. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only Son, who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. And that's the phrase I want to notice this morning. Full of grace and truth. Full of grace and truth. You see, for Jesus, there was no conflict. There was no struggle between grace and truth. He was able to fully, 100%, at all times, embody both grace and truth. Every bit of truth he offered was wrapped in grace, and every time he offered grace, it was surrounded and smothered in truth. And I bring this up, friends, simply to point this out. I am not Jesus. That's point number one of the message today. You don't have to write it down. Um, I am not Jesus. Sometimes I'm full of grace, but tend to compromise or water down the truth. Other times I'm strong on truth, but fail to offer the grace God calls me to have in the lives of people. This morning, friends, I need you to hear and know that my goal is to be as much like Jesus as I possibly can, full of both grace and truth as we tackle this very sensitive and difficult subject. But I'm also going to ask something of you. I'm going to ask something of you that you actually do really well, and that's this, to listen generously not with a critical spirit, to listen not for what others should hear, to not listen with a list of things you're hoping that I will or won't say, but to instead listen with an open heart, to consider that God might want to speak something today to you. And I guess what I'm asking is that for the next 30 minutes, that you lay down your agenda, whatever your agenda is. Because this message won't be perfect. It won't be comprehensive. It will not answer all of your questions or solve all of your problems. But maybe, just maybe, God today, by his grace and the power of the Holy Spirit, will move us together this morning as a community to be more the safe and healing church 
that God longs us to be for people who are experiencing sexual brokenness. And I'm going to give you a list of P words this morning to sort of help frame this message, to kind of help like, give you some hooks to hang some things on. A list of things I believe the scriptures call us to consider in hopes that we will become a place of safety and healing in this area. And here's our first word. The first word is personal. We must remember that sexuality is extremely personal because this, my friends, is what the scriptures teach us. Genesis chapter 1, the very beginning of the Bible, the beginning of the story. God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. Here is what the Bible teaches. And by the way, the implications of this are huge, enormous, simple truth, massive implications for our lives. The Bible says this, your sexuality, the fact that you are a sexual being is woven deep down into the center of who you are. Some of you will remember this. I've done this before, but I believe this is just something so important that we must continue to go over it time and time again because the ramifications of it are enormous, not just in this area of sexuality, but in a lot of areas of our lives, but it pertains today to our sexuality. There are layers, friends, to who I am. There are layers to who you are. There are things that, that, that form me and shape me and create my identity there are things that define who I am and who God has made me to be. And if you look at me, there are layers to these things. And on the, the outskirts, there are things that define me a little, that define me loosely. But then as you move towards the middle, there are things that are very central to me and who I am. Maybe out on the periphery of me, there's the fact that I like sushi. Do you guys know that? I like sushi. I do. I really like sushi. And just this week, I discovered that there's a sushi place right nearby that's offering like uh, happy hour pastor-priced sushi from 2 to 4.30. And I was so thrilled to know that now if I can just hold out for a couple more hours, I can eat sushi once or maybe twice a week. We'll see if the wife allows me. And, and I was just thrilled by that because I just enjoy eating sushi and I don't get to do it enough. And that's just part of me. It's part of who I am. But it's real peripheral. It's way on the outside of me. You know, if you don't like sushi, I won't be that offended. If you talk trash about sushi, we're not going to argue or even fight. I don't care. But I like sushi. There it is. That's me. Outer, outer level. But then if you move in a, a, another layer down, uh, you might discover something like, I'm a pastor. That's my vocation, right? See, vocation is a big part of who we are. This is why when people meet each other, one of the very first things they'll ask is, what do you do? You see, this is our attempt at sort of taking it down a notch, going a little closer. It's not the most peripheral thing about us, but it's also not the most personal or central. We just want to say, what do you do? See, and our vocations are part of us. It's starting to get a little personal. This is why when you get a job, it's so exciting. This is why when you lose your job, maybe even after years of working in the same company, it stings and it cuts because our vocation is a part of who we are. But then if you go another layer down... You might discover something a little deeper than that, and that's that I'm a friend. 
that you are a friend, that we have friends, that there are people in this world that we have deep connections to, that we have and are doing life with. You know, just a few weeks, Amy and I are getting out of town for a few days. We have some folks watching our kids, and we are going away, just the two of us, for three nights to Vancouver, uh, Canada. Never been to Vancouver before. And we're meeting there some friends of ours from back in our Minnesota days, from back before we had kids, when I was a youth pastor in Minnesota, the Johnsons, and some of our dearest friends from our early married years. And we get together with them like once every three years. It's just this joyous time. I love spending time with the Johnsons. They're people who have formed me and shaped me and I feel connected to. That's just a, a part of who I am, other friends in that same category. But then if you go a little kind of layer beneath that and you keep kind of going towards the middle, you'll discover that I have a family. And this is starting to get more and more personal, isn't it? And we all have a family. We all have siblings and parents and grandparents and cousins and uncles and aunts. And family, by the way, friends, is so important. Family shapes us. Family forms us. It forms our faith. This is why we did an entire series this summer on family, because God uses the family, our family, something that's like deeply connected, now getting closer to the center of who we are, to help us discover ourselves. You know, and part of our family, I'll just say this, is our race. Part of our family is our ethnicity. And as you can see, this is something, again, that's starting to get a little closer to the center. And this is why racial conversations, this is why racial conflict is difficult and delicate because now we are talking about something not way out on the edge. Now we're talking about something that's woven a little closer into who we are. But it's not quite the middle. If you pull that layer off and you go another layer down, you'll discover that, for me, I'm a husband and a father. Now we start talking about immediate family. Right? See, immediate family is really, really close to the center of our personhood. This is why, by the way, a compliment from your spouse matters so much. This is why Amy's words about my sermon matter more than your words about my sermon. This is why love and respect in a marriage is essential. This right here, friends, is also why and explains why umpires get attacked at Little League baseball games. Here's why. Because you didn't just make a bad call. You made my kid feel like a failure. And so I will lose my composure in public. Why? Because you've messed with something that is closely connected to the core of me. I'm not giving you permission to yell at umpires. I'm just explaining why you do it. <laughs> and now maybe you'll have just a little more grace for those people. But if you peel away that layer, and now we're getting really, really close to the middle, now you'll discover my sexuality. For me, that I'm a man. You see, way down, one layer away from the core of who we are, and I would argue that at the very center, at the very core, is this fact that we are all created in the image of God. 
That's the very center. That's the middle. That's the thing we all have in common. But one layer out, one layer removed from the fact that you are created in the image of God is that you are created as a sexual being. Listen again. In the image of God, he created them. Center, that's the center, that's the core. Male and female, he created them. The very next layer. And then, and friends, this has so many implications, some of which we will flesh out this morning, but the first one is this. When we talk about and engage sexual brokenness, we are not talking about people's preference for pizza or pasta or prime rib. We're not talking about something they are loosely connected to, but instead something that runs down deep into the very center of what defines us as human beings. And this, by the way, friends, is why. This biblical understanding of who we are as people is why when we talk about sexuality, two things come out. We take it very seriously. This is why Christians care so much about sexuality, because it matters a lot. And secondly, this is also the reason why when we talk about sexual brokenness, we handle it so carefully. A few years ago, there was an Academy Award-winning movie called The Hurt Locker that followed an explosive ordnance disposal team in Iraq. These are the guys who would go and they would defuse bombs. And I don't remember a whole lot about the movie, but I do remember that when there was a potential threat... They took it very seriously. They suited up in all this gear, and every single move was calculated, and every single move was careful. Friends, that's the image I believe we must have as a church moving into the very personal arena of people's sexual brokenness. Because again, we are talking about something that's personal. We're talking about something that runs real deep. And friends, when things get personal, it becomes really hard to be vulnerable. When things get personal, it can get difficult to discuss them. When things get personal, societies and communities and churches can wrestle with how to offer people help and healing. Have you ever noticed that this is a difficult subject in our world these days? And Jesus knows this. He knows what a personal subject this this is. He knows how difficult these conversations are. He knows how hard it is for us to step into this subject. And so what he does is he gives us a starting posture for this conversation. He positions us to tackle this subject together. And that's the second P that we must consider as we, as we become a place of safety and healing in this arena, we must have the right posture. Matthew chapter 5. Matthew chapter 5 is the Sermon on the Mount. And in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus is talking about the kingdom of God. The main subject of the New Testament. The kingdom of God. He's talking about what it means for God to be king in this world. He's saying this is what it looks like for a human being to make God king in their life. 
And he says, what happens and what changes when a person says, God, your will and your ways will guide and direct me. He says, let me tell you what it, how things look different, how things transform when a person says, I'm not king, God, you're king. I'm not going to follow the ways of others or of this world. I'm going to follow your ways. Your will be done in my life, Lord. Let me tell you what that looks like, Jesus says, in a human life. Jesus is talking about this. He's talking about what it looks like to yield to God as king. And so, of course, he doesn't sidestep. He's not scared to talk about. Of course, he talks about sexuality and sexual brokenness. Why? Because Jesus understands this is central to what it means to be a human. Here's what he says as he wades into these deep waters. The kingdom of God and sexual brokenness by Jesus. You have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. But I tell you that anyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. You see, in Jesus' day, the thinking around sexual brokenness went kind of like this. In the Ten Commandments, the Seventh Commandment forbids adultery. So people who commit adultery are the bad people, and the people who avoid committing adultery are the good people. So there's the sexually good people and the sexually bad people, the sexually whole people and the sexually broken people. Jesus, those are the categories for, for which people were talking about sexual brokenness in Jesus' day. We have our own categories in our day. We'll talk about that in a bit. But Jesus steps into this conversation. There's sexually broken people, sexually whole people. There's adulterers and non-adulterers. And the question is, what does he do? How does he speak into this conversation? He does something genius. He levels the playing field. He tears down the starting place of them versus us. Let me explain. First of all, a question. What's more common, adultery or lust? I'm asking, you can answer. I know it's a really uncomfortable word to say in church, and no one wants to talk out loud during the sermon on sexual brokenness, but it's okay, and this is not a trick question. What's more common, adultery or lust? Lust. lust. Thank you for not making me do a survey. I was going to have people raise hands, but <laughs> it just gets really weird. In fact, friends, I'll go as far as to say this. Most, if not all of us in here, have struggled with lust at some point. We've fantasized sexually about someone we aren't married to. Again, I won't do a show of hands. And then let's go another layer down. Let's, let's walk another layer into this conversation and the genius of Jesus' comments here. Who is Jesus addressing in his remarks? Who is Jesus directly speaking to here? He's talking to men. This is why he says, I tell you, anyone who looks at a woman lustfully, right? So he's talking to men. Why? Why does Jesus talk to men? Here's why. In Jesus' day, there wasn't just like the adulterer and the non-adulterer. Those weren't the only lines between like the them and the us, the good and the bad, like the the sexually broken and the sexually whole, right? There's, those weren't the only lines. There was also another line, and that line was between men and women. 
You see, in Jesus' day, there were men who were sexually broken, and then there were women who were sexually broken. Who do you think was considered to be, in Jesus' day, more sexually broken, men or women? Women. You see, we sometimes talk about the double standard of sexuality as if it's this new thing in our world, and yet it has always been there. It is there in our world today, and in our world, it's a bit more subtle, but in Jesus' world, it was not subtle at all. In fact, there was a Roman law uh, right about the time of Jesus that read like this. If you should catch your wife in adultery, you may put her to death without a trial. But if you should commit adultery, she must not presume to lay a finger on you, nor does the law allow it. You see, this is a world where there were the adulterers. I know, Judy, it's like really surprising, isn't it? Like, um, I'm not saying that's good. I'm just telling you what happened back then. Don't throw anything just yet. There's the good and the bad, the adulterer, the non-adulterer. But there was also, you know, men and women. And Jesus is just cutting through all the lines here. So Jesus says right off the bat, let's level the playing field about who is sexually broken in our midst. Let's redefine sexual brokenness and, and our starting place as we enter into this conversation. Anyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery within her heart. You want to know who, who's committed adultery? Anyone who's looked at a woman lustfully? Now, guys, just speaking to you for a minute, any of you guys in here from that starting place, from that statement, you're going to get real judgy and condemning? Does that just create a lot of judgment in us versus them in your heart? No, it doesn't, does it? You see, what Jesus does... As he says, no more adulterers and non-adulterers, no more men versus women. He breaks down the us versus them, the good versus bad, starting posture of this discussion. He says, guess what, friends? Let's begin this discussion this way. Let's just acknowledge that we're all sexually broken. Let's posture our hearts in the right place as we dive into this sensitive subject. Let's get together and agree on one fact. We've all had some struggles and have some issues in this area. Now notice that he doesn't say, let's just sweep sexual brokenness under the rug. He doesn't say, let's just justify it or pretend it's not real or ignore the fact that God has something so much better for us. He does not do that, but he does say this. Let's start the conversation from the right place with the right posture, and that's the posture that says we are all sexually broken people. Let's begin there. Back when I was a kid, we used to go to a Lutheran church and there's sort of this liturgy every week, and the pastor would say some things, and the people would say some things, and the pastor would say some things. It was kind of this whole like thing, and it was the same every week. And one of the things we used to do every week is that we would all together sort of talk about our sin. And we'd say, Lord, I've sinned against you in thought, word, and deed. And it's just kind of part of the rhythm of every Sunday morning. And I remember thinking, this is so monotonous and boring. It didn't really mean anything to me. And yet, I will say this. There's something really good and cleansing and powerful about letting the words roll off your lips. I am here as a sinful person, as a broken person, as a person who's dependent on God's grace. And if I were to ask, and if we were all being honest, we would make that same confession about this area of brokenness because every single person in this room has a story. All of us 
have experienced brokenness, not just in general, but in this area specifically. All of us have experienced sexual brokenness in some way. Some of us have regrets from the past about decisions we've made. Others struggle with same-sex attraction or gender identity or lust. Others with pornography or sexual addiction of some kind. Some wrestle with being single and what that means for your sexuality. Some struggle in the area of sexuality in your marriage. And you felt pressure or you felt neglected. Some have experienced the unfaithfulness of a spouse. Some in this room have been the one who was unfaithful. Some have medical conditions or limits in this area. Others, some in this room have even been the victim of harassment or sexual abuse. And we'll talk about what God thinks about that in a bit. But friends, in our world, just like in Jesus' world, some of the things on that list tend to get more attention than others. Some in our world are highlighted more or validated more or come with more guilt and shame attached to them. But Jesus says, if we want to be a people who offer the hope and healing and comfort of the kingdom sexually in our world, we must start with this posture. There is no us and them. We are all sexually broken people who need help and healing and restoration to live the lives God longs for us to live in this area. So it's personal, and there's a posture. And then finally, our last P is the word power. If we want to be a church that offers safety and healing in this area, we must understand the power of sexual brokenness. And I'm going to break this final point into two subpoints. So just when you thought this sermon was almost over, I slipped in a fourth point. Two subpoints. First, we must not underemphasize the power of sexual brokenness. And second, we must not overemphasize the power of sexual brokenness. First, we must not underemphasize the power of sexual brokenness. If we want to be a place of healing and help and redemption for people sexually, we can't just sweep it under the rug. Listen to what Jesus says. You have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. But I tell you that anyone who looks on a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Level the playing field. We're all in this together. If your right eye causes you to stumble... Gouge it out and throw it away. It is better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to stumble, cut it off and throw it away. It is better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to go into hell. Now, again, do you see what Jesus is saying here? He says, sexual brokenness is a powerful thing. It wants to take control of your life. Sexual brokenness wants to destroy you. It wants to lead you into a place where you are separated from God, where you're separated from God's goodness, where you are separated from the life that God longs for you to live, the abundant life of joy and peace and love and grace and mercy. And friends, by the way, that's the definition of hell. Having your life separated from God, having your life separated from the life that God longs for you to have, that's the word Jesus uses here. In our English translation, it's hell. It's actually the word Gehenna. You see, Jesus isn't saying 
If you are sexually broken, you'll go to hell someday. That's not his words. That's not what he's, he's offering. He's saying sexual brokenness, if you let it, it will ruin your life. That's how powerful it is. That's how powerful sexual brokenness is, and we must not ignore it. We cannot ignore it, not if we love people. And so Jesus says, do whatever it takes to keep from letting this brokenness have control of you. Do whatever it takes to make sure that this area of brokenness does not get control of you. And here Jesus uses hyperbole. He exaggerates to make his point. He is not suggesting self-mutilation, but he is saying this. You may have to do things that seem drastic in order to fight the power of this horrible thing you are facing. You may have to do some things that seem drastic to fight the power of sexual brokenness in your life because it is powerful. He's saying, you know, when it comes to sexual brokenness, simple measures may not be enough. Maybe you need to be proactive. Maybe you need to draw some new boundaries around your dating relationship. Maybe you can't just hang out in his or her apartment anymore alone. And that may seem way too traditional or archaic and your friends may laugh at you. But friends, some drastic measures may need to get taken if you do not want sexual brokenness to get a grip on your life. Maybe business travel, maybe that just doesn't work for you. But Pastor Dave, my job needs me, to, I have to travel for my job. Maybe business travel, that just doesn't work for you. And you've proven it time and time again. Quit that job and get a new job. If you have to gouge your right eye out or cut off your hand, do it. Do whatever it takes to avoid letting sexual brokenness get a grip on your life and destroy you. You see, maybe it's not an eye, maybe it's not a hand, but maybe it's something that just needs to get cut out of your life. Maybe certain Netflix shows put your mind on a path that is just unhealthy. Maybe it's time to cancel Netflix. Maybe unsupervised internet access isn't something you can handle. It's time to get a password and hand that password over to your wife or your husband or a friend. You know, a number of years ago, um, this is before, this is like beyond five years, so I wasn't here. I've just heard the story. Pastor Ron has shared with me. Pastor Ron, great to see you today. Um, uh, a number of guys, after a message like this or a weekend about this very subject, just started bringing computers and stacking them in the church parking lot. Isn't that right, Ron? Just started like stacking them, just trashing their computers in the, in the church parking lot. And you, and you might think, that's, that's silly. Why would you do that? It's become some guy said, I've had enough. I will, I will no longer let what happens on this computer, I will no longer let what comes through this screen get a grip on my heart and soul and destroy me. I would rather trash this computer than sacrifice my life to the sexual brokenness it is bringing to me. Maybe today the drastic measure you need to take is you need to find someone to talk with. You know, quiet confession to the Lord is a good thing, but the Bible says that opening up the hardest, deepest, most painful parts of our lives to godly, trusted friends, that is essential 
If we want to have victory over sin, especially in this area of sexual brokenness, maybe you're at a place where you need some some bigger help. Maybe you need some counseling to work through the mistakes from the past and to find forgiveness and healing. The forgiveness and healing that God so desperately wants you to have. To find the freedom that God so desperately wants you to find. Or you may need to get help so that you can heal from some hurts. So that your past doesn't control your life. So that something that was maybe done to you doesn't control your life for the rest of your days. Maybe you need to walk into soul care. It's a ministry we have here. It's a great place to start. It's safe and confidential people who will talk to you about your hurts and pains and struggles, who've been trained to listen and ask questions in just the right way. You can get the information out in the lobby on our website. Maybe today you need to walk into soul care. You can make an anonymous phone call and sign up and get an appointment. I promise you it will bless your soul. I have sat through some soul care. And came out the other side better for it. Maybe it's amending the soul class. Mending the soul is an intensive place where people walk through the hurt and pain and brokenness in their lives. We've got a session coming up right now for men, one for women starting in January. Maybe God wants to use that in your life to to release the grip of sexual brokenness and the grip that it has on you. Maybe celebrate recovery. We're talking more about celebrate recovery next week. But it's a community where you can walk with people through a process to bring recovery and restoration to your life. Maybe it's a 4-2-3 group. Maybe you're a addicted. Maybe you're addicted. Maybe you have a spouse who's addicted to pornography and you just need freedom and you've tried on your own over and over and over again and it's not working. Take the step. Small measures aren't working. You may need to do something drastic. The words of Jesus. Jesus says, do whatever it takes to not let your sexual brokenness have power over your life. I cannot say this strongly enough. Young people, hear me today. Because it's easy to get caught into this trap. The trap of just saying to yourself, because this is what the word will say, it's not a big deal. It's not a big deal. It's so easy to underemphasize the power of sex and sexual brokenness. It's so easy to just tell yourself that. To walk out of here and just let this message roll off you like water off a duck's back. Listen to how Paul talks about this. Not just Jesus. In the New Testament, Paul talking to the church, to Christ followers. Here's what he says. Flee from sexual immorality. All other sins a person commits are outside the body, but whoever sins sexually sins against their own body. You know what, what Paul's talking about? Paul's talking about this. Paul's going back to this biblical understanding of who we are and how we're created and and how sexuality is woven down into the very center of our lives. Flee sexuality. All other sin, he says. That's a big category. All other sin happens outside your body, but when you sin sexually, when you engage sexual brokenness and you don't find healing and help for your sexual brokenness, something damaging just lives down deep inside of you. Why is he so adamant about it? Is it because the Bible is so prudish and conservative and out to sort of kill your fun? We're such a sexually repressed people, us Christians. No, no, actually, on the contrary, 
The Bible has some of the most sexually illicit material you'll ever read. If I wanted to this morning, I could make every single person in this room feel really uncomfortable. Even you old people who've seen it all. I could make you blush today. I could read some stuff and explain some imagery that would make you go like, I can't believe we're talking about that in church. That feels X-rated. See, the Bible is not anti-sex. The Bible celebrates sex. But here's what the Bible understands. The Bible understands very clearly the power of sex. The power of sex to do enormous good, to create enormous joy, but it also understands the power of sex to do tremendous damage. Friends, this is why sexual harassment and abuse are so devastating and something that God absolutely abhors. Because the Bible says our bodies are not separated from our souls. And so when you harass or objectify or abuse another person in this way, you don't just tamper with their body. You are messing with their soul. You're digging way into their personhood. This is also why the Bible outlines the boundary for sex to be marriage. Again, not because the Bible is prudish, but because the Bible does not want this powerful thing to do damage where it's supposed to do good. Let me explain it like this. You know, we all bring a number of things into our relationships, right? A lot of things. One of the the most central things we bring is our will. We all have a will, right? Like we, we get to decide for us. God actually says like your body is your kingdom. You, have, you get to rule and reign and make decisions for yourself. God creates us that way, right? With a will, with the ability to make decisions and commitments on our own. And the highest level, by the way, of will commitment to another person is a thing we call marriage. The highest level of will commitment we make to another person is this thing called marriage. In the Bible, there's a fancy word for it. It's the word covenant. It means this. No matter what, I am with you. No matter what, I am with you. I'm committed to you. I choose to fully join my life with yours. By my will, by my decision, I choose to fully, now and forever, Bind my life to yours. That's the highest level of will commitment we can make. We call it marriage. It's one aspect of our relationships. But there's another aspect of our relationships. It's the physical aspect. It has to do with our bodies. And the highest level of physical commitment we can make to a person. We can make a lot of physical commitments to a person, right? Like here's one of the, here's one of the like, most classic shake on it. That's a physical commitment that's combined with a will commitment, right? We make other physical commitments to people, but the highest physical commitment we make to a person is what? Sexual. When we give ourselves sexually in that physical way, we make a very high commitment. Sex is saying, I choose to fully join my body with yours. I give all of my physical self to you. That's what the Bible says sex is. And so to have full sexual commitment, full physical commitment with someone you are not committed to with your life, with your will, is to make promises with your body that you are not willing to make with your will. And the Bible says 
This will lead to pain and hurt and brokenness. And so Paul uses the strongest possible language he can. You ever, you ever notice how strong the Bible is about sex? When it talks about sex, it's, it's very adamant. Flee from sexual immorality. Like, hey, don't mess around with sex, sexual immorality. Flee sexual immorality. Why? Why so strong? Why so passionate? Because what Paul understands is this can really damage you. This is a powerful thing. And when your will and your body get out of alignment, bad stuff is going to happen. Jesus takes it even further. He says, don't even let your mind, not even in your brain, like don't even let your, like, your sexual life in your mind get out of alignment with your will. That's how powerful Jesus says it is. So, so important. Again, because we really want to be traditional values and conservative. no. No, actually, the Bible is very liberal about sexual activity, especially within marriage. So more on that in another sermon. <laughs> but friends, here's the point. Here's the point. If we want to be a community that offers hope and healing and wholeness in this area of sexual brokenness, we must not underemphasize the power of sexual brokenness. The world does it all the time. It doesn't matter. It won't be that big of a deal. It's just two people. It's just two bodies. Everyone's doing it. Right? And the church stands up and says, no, that is not the reality. And if you watch people's lives, we're right. The scriptures are right. Devastating impact. Devastating impact. So we must not underemphasize the power of sexual brokenness. Number two, we must not overemphasize the power of sexual brokenness. And we're guilty of doing this in the church as well. Did you know that some of the people who are most attracted to Jesus were people who were deeply and profoundly broken in this area. In fact, one of the most beautiful stories in all of Scripture is a story where Jesus encounters a woman at a well in Samaria at 12 o'clock, 12 noon, right in the middle of the day, in the hottest, sunshiniest part of the day in the middle of the desert. Jesus is there, and so is she. No one else is around, and so, of course, they start a conversation, and in their conversation, Jesus lets this woman know that he knows all about her. He knows all about her past. He knows that she has been married five times, that, she was, that she's living with a guy right now that isn't her husband. And friends, by the way, even in just those two statements, there are probably so many layers of sexual brokenness that the text does not explicitly give us, but they're just implied. This is a woman who has experienced sexual brokenness and who is living with brokenness in this area of her life beyond what we can even comprehend. You see, the reason they were alone at the well is because it's 12 noon and nobody goes to the well. Nobody goes to get water in the heat of the day. No one walks outside and gets water at 12 noon. But this woman did. Why? Why? Because she couldn't stand the stairs anymore. Because she couldn't handle the shame. Because she couldn't take the judgment that she saw and all the other women's eyes when they all went to the well together. And so she goes at 12 noon so she can go alone. Because the weight and the burden and the shame and the regret of her sexual brokenness, it weighs her down like we can't even imagine. But Jesus shows up and he looks at this woman and the text says he loves her and he says, 
I got some water to give you. You got that water there? I got some water to give you. In other words, you are not beyond my love. You are not beyond my reach. There is nothing you have done or that has been done to you that I cannot redeem and restore and reclaim and even use for my kingdom purposes. You see, Jesus doesn't overemphasize the power of sexual brokenness, and neither should we. Another great story where Jesus encounters a woman, and by the way, the reason the stories around sexual brokenness and the scriptures have to do with women are not to say that women are the sexually broken people. It's to say that women were the vulnerable people of that world. I believe in our world today, Jesus would come and he would meet with you men. And he would walk up to you and he'd say, I've got some water for you. Because you're just as vulnerable these days as the ladies. But in this story, in John chapter 8, Jesus is there and the religious guys the teachers of the law, they show up with this woman who's caught in adultery. And they put her before Jesus, and what do they say? They say, Jesus, the law of Moses says this woman's caught in adultery, and we should stone her. We should kill her. What do you say, Jesus? Do you say we should agree with the Bible? Should we agree with the law? Or should we show mercy? Should we stone this woman, or should we let her go? And they think, now we've got him. Now we've got him. Because he's either going to kill this woman, he's either going to, like, lob stones at her, or, or he's going to disagree with the law of God and he's going to let her go. He has no way out. And this story teaches us so much about so many things, but one of the things it shows us is this. These guys, all they see is a problem. All they see is an issue. All they see is an abstract debate over morality. That's the only thing they're tuned in here to. But you know what Jesus sees? He sees through all that. And he sees a woman. He sees a person. And he reminds us of the very thing that we started talking about. That this issue... That sexual brokenness is not just some issue to debate, that this involves people, broken people. And he says, guys, this is personal. And then he reminds them of the posture that we're supposed to take. And what does he say? Let he who is without sin cast the first stone. Remember, guys, remember, it's not us versus them. It's not men versus women. It's not non-adulterers versus adulterers. Let's start this conversation again. Every single one of us is sexually broken. And then he looks at this woman and he says, go and sin no more. And there's so much wrapped up in that little phrase, but I'll tell you just a little bit of it. What Jesus is saying here is the new life that God has for you, the life of hope and joy and victory and peace, a life walking with God, a life walking in his kingdom, a life being and becoming the person that God longs for, for you to be, that life is not out of your reach. You have not disqualified yourself from that just because of sexual sin and brokenness in your past. It is not too late for you. Your sin is not bigger than my love. Jesus looks right past this problem and he sees this person, friends. Maybe... Today, you need some of that same water from Jesus. Maybe you need that same look from him. Maybe you need to hear again that there is nothing that can separate you from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Even that sin of yours, even that sexual sin, even that thing you did or have done or are doing or that was done to you, it is not bigger than the cross. 
No, ses- no lustful thoughts. No sex-struggling marriage, no harassment or abuse, no affair, no pornography, no struggles with homosexuality, no eating disorder, no sexual addiction. None of it, none of it is too big for the love of God. The love of God is overwhelming. And church, if we believe that, if we hold tight to the fact that this is personal, that these are people, if we remind ourselves of the Jesus posture when we talk about sexual brokenness and talk to people who are sexually broken along with us, and if we cling to the power of sexual brokenness but don't under or over, overemphasize it, I think this, I think there's hope. I think there's hope for the world. I think there's hope for the church. I think there's hope for the church, even in this sexually broken world that we live in. Here's what I believe. I believe if we cling to these things, we might actually become like Jesus and make him known. We might actually start to look like Jesus in this world, full of grace and full of truth. Grace always wrapped in truth and truth always covered in grace. May we be that kind of church. Father, this morning, I'm praying for people who are here in this room and their sexual brokenness, their failure in this area, their abuse in this area, their pain in this area. It's on the surface. It's right on the edge of their minds, Lord. I pray that you would move in and that Holy Spirit, exactly what they need to hear from you would be said. That the healing touch that they need, that you would speak that into their hearts right now. God, and I pray that we as a church would be more courageous, more vulnerable to talking about these things, to engaging this area of brokenness in our world. Give us the right posture and help us to hold on to, Lord, the grace and truth that you give. So Lord, right now, Lord, we'll worship you. We'll declare that just like the rest of the world, we need your love. We need your overwhelming, never-ending love that chases us down, that will not let us escape, that says there is nothing you have done that can separate you from my love in this world. Thank you, Jesus, for loving us this way. And we pray it all in your name. Amen.